Some people used to complain that nothing was happening in, in the U.S., at least when you compared to what was going on in Chile or Sudan or Britain or Algeria. For years, Americans watched from afar as waves of revolution swept the rest of the planet in places like Venezuela or Greece or Spain. But we explained that when you have a worldwide economic system, you also get worldwide economic crisis, worldwide class struggle, and ultimately worldwide revolution. America will never be a socialist country. 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 Attitudes are changing towards socialism. We believe the only solution is the establishment of a workers' government on a socialist program. Welcome to another episode of Socialist Revolution Podcast. I'm Laura, I'm an editor at Socialist Revolution, and this week we are featuring a talk from our 2020 National School on the Black Lives Matter uprising and perspectives for revolution in the U.S. Every year, Socialist Revolution holds a national event that brings comrades together from every corner of the country. These kinds of events really give us a chance to discuss political ideas and perspectives, to exchange experiences, and to strategize for socialism in our lifetime. For obvious reasons, this year we had to meet online, but given the events of 2020, we had some really exciting and some of our most inspiring discussions ever. More than ever, we can see that socialism is on the rise and that a whole new generation is turning to revolutionary ideas. If you'd like to participate in these kinds of events in the future, you can contact us at socialistrevolution.org. To open the school, John Peterson, the editor of Socialist Revolution, gave an overview of the dramatic events that have unfolded over the last couple of months. It's estimated that over 25 million people in more than 2,000 cities and towns across the country have participated in Black Lives Matter protests. The sheer scale of this uprising is totally without precedent, and yet this is only a taste of what's to come in future revolutionary struggles. Welcome everyone to the 2020 National School of the U.S. section of the IMT. This is an extraordinary event because this has been an absolutely extraordinary year. Extraordinary because we had to postpone our usual in-person event, but instead, at least, we get to have this massively attended event, the largest we've ever held in the U.S. section, with comrades joining us from every part of the country, from the Deep South to Alaska. We also have comrades joining us from other parts of the world, from Canada to Iceland to the U.K. We've had huge growth in our organization in the recent period, so for many comrades, this is their first ever national event, but Obviously, it certainly won't be the last. For years, we've been preparing for precisely this kind of a situation, and our perspectives have been absolutely confirmed this year, over and over again. Some people used to complain that, you know, nothing was happening in, in the U.S., at least when you compared to what was going on in Chile or Sudan or Britain or Algeria. For years, Americans watched from afar as waves of revolution swept the rest of the planet, and a lot of people used to literally ask us whether there was something special in the water in places like Venezuela or Greece or Spain. 
But we explained that when you have a worldwide economic system, you also get worldwide economic crisis, worldwide class struggle, and ultimately worldwide revolution. We've explained consistently that revolutions don't respect borders, that the working class learns from its collective experiences across those borders, and above all, that the interests of the workers are fundamentally the same no matter where they were born, no matter what language they speak, what religion they may or may not practice, the color of their skin, their gender, or any other marker of the incredible diversity of our species. We've also explained tirelessly that the interests of the workers and of the capitalists are diametrically opposed and that working class independence and working class unity must be fought for at all costs. We simply cannot trust the representatives of an enemy class to defend our interests. The workers can depend only on our own forces, our own strength, and our own organizations. We also explained that when we're watching events in places like Egypt or Brazil or Greece, we should be aware that we're in effect looking in a mirror and that events of this very type are not in our too distant future. Can anyone now deny that these processes have arrived in this country? Over the last few months, we've had election 2020 and especially the Democratic primaries, which included Bernie Sanders' capitulation. The COVID-19 pandemic, which is far from over, in fact, it may be getting worse and maybe just beginning, an economic collapse that is also far from over on a scale even greater than the Great Depression, and of course, in recent weeks, the dramatic revival of the Black Lives Matter movement, all of this with the racist megalomaniac in the White House. But of course, even before all of this, we had some not insignificant movements and struggles over the last few years including, for example, the mass movement we saw last summer in Puerto Rico, the youth movement against gun violence, the incredible climate strike movement, the massive women's march and protests against Trump's election, the struggle at Standing Rock, the 2008 economic collapse and the bailout of Wall Street, the Wisconsin uprising, the Occupy movement, the Ferguson protests and the original BLM, Colin Kaepernick's protest, a massive immigrant rights movement, and a massive movement against the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And internationally, we've had things like the Venezuelan Revolution, the Arab Spring and the Egyptian Revolution, and the crisis in Europe and the events, the events in Greece, Britain, and, and, and everywhere else, Spain, everywhere. So over the last few months, though, we've seen a truly unprecedented convergence of events. It's not just one thing taking place. It's several things layering on top of each other. And this is having a multiplier effect, if you will, on the crisis and on consciousness. Now, we absolutely anticipated this, though we couldn't have predicted the exact combination of factors that we would be seeing. But as we explained in our 2016 U.S. Perspectives document, quote, the disparate efforts to change society will have a layering effect on consciousness, which will eventually reach a tipping point. Over time, the streams of struggle will tend to converge in one form or another, eventually merging into a raging river of revolutionary class struggle. As Marxists, we understand that we live in an epoch of crisis, of revolution and counter-revolution, and that sharp and sudden changes in the situation are to be expected. In fact, they're an inevitable part of this process, this part of the dialectical process of history, as necessity is again and again expressed through what appears to be accidents. Now, of course, George Floyd's murder was not an accident, uh, th but this latest movement was an accident waiting to happen. Because it's not just about George Floyd, it's not just this particular movement, it's also about 
Ahmad Arbery and Breonna Taylor and Eric Garner and Trayvon Martin and Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X and Emmett Till and Nat Turner and tens of thousands of other abuses and lynchings and injustices that have accumulated over the centuries. So the last few weeks, we've seen a historic tipping point, a real perfect storm of economic, political, and social crisis. This elemental movement that we've seen on the streets for the last uh, month or so, this movement of ordinary workers, and above all of the youth, has had a profound effect on people's consciousness, and it's going to change people's lives from here on out. It's impacted millions of people, and not just in the United States. But this overall crisis has no real historical parallel. It's a bit like the Spanish influenza, the Great Depression, the labor struggles of the 1930s, the civil rights movement, and Occupy all rolled into one, but on an even higher level because everything is just so ramped up these days. And really, we've got to remember that this is only the beginning of the beginning of a process that's going to have plenty of ups and downs, lots of victories, even bigger defeats. But overall, the trend is moving in a very clear direction. Now, for many years, we've tracked the effect of all of this on the consciousness of the working class. Uh, many comrades will remember, or, or you've certainly heard of the attacks on, on September 11th. Uh, those took place less than 20 years ago. And afterward, there was a grotesque outpouring of patriotism. Uh, there was American flags everywhere. People's cars were covered with them. Some cars had, you know, 12 American flags up on them. Uh, just over a decade ago, we had the so-called Tea Party movement. Again, uh, very right-wing uh, expression. And a lot of people around the world looking at these things, they really mocked Americans. George W. Bush was in office. They made fun of Americans. They said that a revolution here was impossible, that Americans were too backwards, too ignorant, too privileged, too racist, or whatever. And people, of course, thought that we, the Marxists, were on a completely different planet. And in some ways, we were living on a different planet. The planet of dialectical materialism, where we could see beyond the surface appearance of events, and we knew that in the depths of society, the laws of the class struggle were unfolding and would eventually erupt to the surface. Now, not long ago in this country and around the world, people had written off or even mocked the idea of socialism, of communism, of revolution. When you'd be selling the paper, people either, either looked at you blankly or maybe gave you an, an ironic smirk or maybe even gave you the finger or worse. Uh, a lot of people, including a lot of people who claimed to be on the left, had written off the working class altogether as a force for transforming society. And of course, remember, up until just a couple months ago, we were living in the longest economic expansion in U.S. history, and we were told that economic crises were a thing of the past. This time it's different. That can't happen again. We've got all these safety measures in place, blah, blah, blah. And of course, we were told that Marxism was dead and buried. Now, tens of millions of Americans consider themselves socialists. They want to join a union. And people's cars, not, uh, they're not covered with uh, U.S. flags anymore, or certainly not as it was in the past. But even in small-town America, you have cars covered with Black Lives Matter slogans. Suddenly, statues and monuments of racists and other oppressors are coming down across the country. And uh, you can see that consciousness is a very fluid thing. This is essentially the same population. Sure, there's been a big influx of young people. The older generation is dying out and they tend to be more conservative. But tens of millions of people who are still alive and were alive 20 years ago have changed their views as society has changed. In short, in the final analysis, as Marx has explained, that conditions determine consciousness, although, of course, this doesn't happen mechanically or automatically. 
As Leon Trotsky put it, however, Marxist theory gives us the advantage of foresight over astonishment. And that's why we in the IMT put so much emphasis on the question of studying and, and really understanding Marxist theory and how to apply it. Now, just a few years later, the U.S. is at the epicenter of the crisis of world capitalism. It was once the greatest source of stability for the system, and now that has been dialectically turned into its opposite. People used to mock the U.S. and write it off, and now the United States is an, is an inspiration to the class struggle worldwide. People around the world are electrified by what they've seen in the last few weeks here in the United States. Again, this is exactly uh, in general terms, what we predicted on the basis of Marxist perspectives. Now, Lenin wrote once uh, that the, the world was full of combustible material. And this, this world we're living in today is exactly what that looks like. There is a lot of tinder in the world, and there are a lot of different sparks flying around. George Floyd's brutal, callous, and even routine murder just overflowed the cup. The coronavirus pandemic, I would say, uh, played something of a dampening role in, uh, in, in, in this process and in the, the scale of the protest. But at the same time, it, for a lot of people who were sick of being locked up at home, they were tired of sitting on the sidelines, tens of millions of people uh, unemployed, a lot of pent-up anger, and there was a big desire to get out and fight despite the pandemic. And incidentally, it seems that there's been quite little transmission of the virus at these protests, since most people on the left tend to wear masks, while the cops and people on the right see it as a kind of badge of honor not to wear those masks. But people came out in droves. I mean, it, it's really an incredible movement, the most inspiring movement I've ever seen, uh, certainly, not, certainly in this country. But of course, the polarization does go in both directions. We've seen a rise in virulent far-right extremists of murders and lynchings of Black people and of, of people getting beat up just for supporting this movement. But the interests and the demands of the majority of this society, of this country, of the working class, and above all, of the youth, are objectively to the left, and they carry far greater social weight. So we shouldn't exaggerate the threat posed by, by fascist groupings, but we also shouldn't underestimate them. The right tends to be very well organized, and they have much of the media and the state behind them, and they can cause a lot of damage if the workers don't get organized and nip that societal gangrene in the bud. And that's, of course, what we're beginning to see in places like Minneapolis and elsewhere. But the youth really are the key factor here. As Lenin said, who has the youth has the future. And even the major media acknowledges that the youth are extremely radicalized. There was a headline the other day, I think on CNN, that said, Gen Z is ready for revolution. Uh, the 2008 generation, as we like to call it, it's a generation of crisis, of austerity, unemployment, alienation, and strangled potential. Uh, these, are, these are people who don't know anything other than, than, than crisis. They, they never lived through the post-war boom. They didn't even grow up in the 80s or the 90s. It's just crisis and unemployment and, and, and tragedy on a worldwide scale that young people have had to live through. And, uh, and that is the promise for the future. But it's not just the youth. This discontent extends to all layers of American society. Millions of people, including grandmas and grandpas, have, are saying enough is enough. You know, they're no longer going to stand aside as their friends, their family, their co-workers, their loved ones, their kids, their grandchildren are treated like subhumans simply because of the color of their skin or the kind of work that they do or their accent or their sexuality or anything else. And while not all workers suffer racist violence or other forms of oppression directly, 
Uh, we are all suffocated by this economic crisis and the pandemic, both of which are functions of the profit-driven capitalist system. As I said, as we know, tens of millions of people have lost their jobs. Uh, millions of people now can't pay the rent, and there's the danger of losing their homes or their apartments. Uh, so the, the, the whole thing is just a giant tinderbox. And it's pretty incredible, therefore, that 74% of all Americans from all age groups and demographics supported the George Floyd protests, despite the hue and cry by the media over violence and the burning of buildings and so on. In fact, 54% of Americans supported the burning down of the Minneapolis 3rd Police Precinct. That's an astonishing figure. This is basically support for acts of insurrection, not in the abstract, not in the future, not historically, but now and in practice. And it's also extremely significant that 20% of Americans now say that no form of capitalism can solve our problems. Uh, end of story. There's just no form of capitalism. You can't just tinker with the system. You can't reform it uh, in, in any significant way. It has to be overthrown altogether. That's 66 million people, give or take, uh, of every age group, but that includes tens of millions of young people, and that is our audience. Now, Lenin explained that there's four main conditions for the emergence of a, of a revolutionary situation and for a successful revolution. Three of them are objective, and they're effectively out of our control, and one of them is subjective, and that is something that we can directly influence. So the first is divisions in the ruling class. We can see these divisions growing every day, deep, deep divisions. Given the crisis of their system, the capitalists can't rule in the old way, and they don't know whether to use repression or to try to give some concessions. But they have a big problem that no matter what they choose, it's going to be the wrong answer because there's very little room in the economy for concessions, and repression alone cannot hold down hundreds of millions of people. The second condition is when the middle layers of society, the petty bourgeoisie, the small business owners, the small landowners, they begin to vacillate uh, and, and to act even more erratically than usual. Some of them swing wildly to the far right, but many others begin looking to the working class for a way out of the societal impasse, since the big bourgeois and their system can no longer guarantee them stability. Many of them begin to identify more and more with the workers, uh, more with the workers than with the bosses, since they themselves are being proletarianized or, or rendered unemployed as their businesses are ruined and their life savings are wiped out. The third condition, then, is that the workers are ready to fight and ready to fight to the end. We've seen the beginnings of this as well. Uh, the working class in the U.S. is not yet fighting as a class in and for itself, but the sheer numbers and pressure that was put on the state apparatus for several weeks in the face of terrible repression and even with the threat of military intervention is an, an important sign of things to come. And finally, the fourth condition is the subjective factor, a revolutionary leadership. That's us. We're here. We're on the map. We have the theory. We have the methods. We have the program. We have a program that could transform society virtually overnight if we could just snap our fingers and implement it. But it's not that simple. We're still way too small. The contradictions of capitalism and the broader historical process will take care of 99% of the preparations for revolution, but that final 1% is essential. And building a far-sighted revolutionary leadership is the one factor of revolution that we have any measure of control over, and it is here that
that we have to concentrate our energies. We have to get big enough in enough economically and politically important industries and population centers to be able to play a decisive factor and tip the scales once and for all in the favor of the working class and the socialist revolution. In the meantime, while we're doing that preparation, we need to continue tracking and analyzing the development of the other three factors, keeping in mind that this is not going to be a linear or gradual process. But we will see from time to time big leaps forward in consciousness as well as an in instability, but there can also be setbacks and there will be periods of relative stasis and apparent stability, but the system is unstable fundamentally uh, because the whole of human society is living on a major fault line and we know that when you live on a fault line, a major earthquake can strike at any time, even if everything seems nice and calm on the surface. Now, the scope and scale of the George Floyd movement has shaken the capitalist class to its core. Under the pressure of the economic collapse, the coronavirus pandemic, and now the mobilized masses, the ruling class is more divided today than at any time since the end of the Civil War and Reconstruction. And as we've seen, they're just not sure how to proceed. After all, what happens when the masses lose their fear of the most advanced and militarized police in the world? 200 different cities impose curfews, 100 cities use tear gas on protesters, and yet the movement continued. Now, Trump thought that he could dust off the Insurrection Act and, uh, and maybe send in the regular army, but this led to even bigger splits in the ruling class. Former generals like Mad Dog Mattis and even the current Secretary of Defense publicly disagreed with the president, and we know that that doesn't happen very often from, from, uh, from that camp. Uh, this, of course, was after Trump threatened, quote, total domination uh, and, and a violent military crackdown, and he proclaimed that when the looting starts, the shooting starts. But 50 years since the Kent State Massacre during the Vietnam War, even Trump can't just simply unleash federal troops against ordinary Americans. The dangers of doing so were made evident in Washington, D.C., where they sent in the National Guard, not the regular uh, army, but just the National Guard to support the police. Sixty percent of those National Guard members in Washington, D.C. were non-white, and they were so ashamed of what they were doing that they didn't want to tell their families where they were being deployed and that they were being used against protesters. This is a deeply significant factor uh, because not all of the bodies of armed men of the capitalist state are racist sociopaths. Uh, most people join the military because of the backdoor poverty draft, or they sign up to defend America from terrorists or whatever, not to beat up and shoot peaceful protesters. The use of direct force is not a simple matter. Uh, it's not just a, a matter of how many tanks you have or how many guns uh, you, you hold, but of the overall class balance of forces. So direct repression didn't work. And they were, uh, in fact, they weren't in a position to ramp up the repression any further. And the whip of counter-revolution, of reaction, actually just spurred the movement to even higher levels. In the end, Trump had to hide like a troll in a bunker under the White House because a few protesters got a little bit too close to the, to the grounds of, uh, of his residence. Um, and the implications of this display of weakness, of indecision, of cowardice, these divisions by the world's most powerful human and by the world's most powerful uh, ruling class is going to have worldwide repercussions. In the end, it seems that they were forced to back off on the repression, which wasn't working much anyway, in the hopes of letting the movement kind of wear itself out. They offered a few crumbs here and there, for example, with the Minneapolis City Council declaring their intention to dismantle the city's police. Uh, and not surprisingly, 
when the cops backed off and with neighborhood self-defense committees popping up, the violence died down. But so, too, did the sensationalist media coverage of, of what was going on. So even after the media stopped covering the protests so much, they were actually surging and going strong in many parts of the country. The Supreme Court was also brought in to play a role uh, by ruling that transgender workers are indeed protected by anti-discrimination laws. It should be a no-brainer, a basic democratic right. But they, you know, they, they made use this ruling, again, to offer crumbs to not add more fuel to the fire, and to try to derail the movement into the courts and into the lawyers. Now, back in 2016, a lot of people were talking about a new kind of sectionalism that had emerged in this country. Uh, you know, and, and there was allegedly a fundamental division between rural and urban America. And of course, this is nothing but an updated variant of the divide and conquer tactic. But we explained that eventually, the fundamental class issues and interests would have inevitably come to the fore. And I think everyone will agree that the depth and breadth of this movement has been really breathtaking. This, the, the divisive poison of identity politics was quickly drowned in the flood tide of mass instinctive unity and solidarity. Over 2,000 cities have had protests. That includes small towns of just a few thousand residents. So de demonstrations were held not just in New York City, but also in upstate New York and places like Oneana and Binghamton. Protests were held not just in places like Kansas, Kansas City, but in Olaf and Shawnee. And even good old Fargo, North Dakota had at least one sizable demonstration. So that shows the real, the real depth of this movement and how it penetrated to literally every part of the country. This movement, what, what it did is it provided an avenue for expressing the general discontent because capitalism has been a disaster for the entire working class, whether they live in urban areas or rural areas. The mundane torture and terror of daily life under this system has become unbearable for tens of millions of people. They've worked hard and they've played by the rules, but they're realizing that the so-called American dream is dead and buried. Now, there's been over 45 million initial unemployment claims, uh, but even as the jobs start coming back, people are scared to go back to work. So employers are actually ratting out their employees to the state to kick them off unemployment and force them back to work in dangerous conditions. Now, the pandemic is, is far from over, as we said. I mean, I think they had a record number, 45,000 new infections this last uh, Friday. Uh, and Trump has been paying, playing politics with the virus from the beginning, and, and this could actually be his undoing. Uh, in response to these conditions, there's been hundreds of wildcat strikes. It's hard to tell exactly how many since most of these strikes aren't counted by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's been mainly precarious workers, warehouse workers, food delivery, grocery, nurses, farm workers, transit, and also mainly youth, largely unorganized, largely Black and Latino workers. But other workers are also starting to flex their muscles, uh, riding the wave that we saw with the teachers and union uh, and nurses strikes just a couple of years ago. As we speak today, 4,000 unionized workers are on strike up in Maine at Bath Ironworks, which builds ships for the U.S. Navy. Uh, because the power of the workers to withhold their labor is the real key here. Now, it's hard to say for sure, but it may be that Juneteenth was the peak of this, uh, of this movement, of this recent protest movement. Uh, all of a sudden, bosses everywhere decided that Juneteenth should be celebrated with a paid day off. Every major brand got in on it, hoping to cash in. But the real story, I think, is that 29 ports along the West Coast were shut down. This shows the enormous power of the working class, as we pointed out time and time again. Just 40 or 50,000 unionized longshore workers 
have the ability to stop every container coming into the West Coast from the Mexican border all the way up to Vancouver in Canada. Uh, and there was very little media coverage of this for a good reason, because they, they completely shut down the port. And if they were to do that indefinitely, it would cost the system billions and billions of dollars. Boots Riley, uh, comrades will be familiar with him, who, by the way, he was a supporter of our Hands Off Venezuela campaign back in the day. He stepped forward into the vacuum of leadership and put forward a position that was way better than any major union leader, calling on the workers to exercise their power as a class to shut shit down. Uh, to, to, to use his words. Uh, so we've seen some really advanced things emerging in the last period, not just this, this West Coast port workers strike, which is extremely significant, but other things like, uh, first and foremost, I'd say the, the neighborhood watch committees that emerged in Minneapolis and in some other cities. This is really an incredible development. It's the organic em embryo of workers' self-defense, which is itself the embryo of the embryo of dual power and of a future workers' government and state. And I think the symptomatic importance of these kinds of committees uh, and even of the self-declared police-free autonomous zones like Chaz, Chop, and, and Seattle can't be overstated despite their limited, partial, and ultimately temporary nature. Because this is the United States, after all, and, and we're seeing this kind of a, a, you know, radicalization and eruption of class struggle within these borders. Now, of course, it's only by mobilizing the full force of the labor movement and the broader working class that the workers can take on the power of the state, uh, their provocateurs and the right-wing militias. We need, and this is something we really need to emphasize, the working class needs organization to counter the centralized power of the capitalist state. But the outline of what this might look like in the future has now been given concrete form, and it doesn't seem so abstract to, to millions of people, not just the people that participated, but people that saw this kind of thing happening. As we know, the Soviets were sort of spontaneously invented in 1905 in Russia. Uh, but after that, workers in Russia knew exactly what kind of organizational form to turn to when, when the revolution broke out again just a few years later. So these lessons are going to leave a deep Im imprint on, on people. And remember, burning down that, that third precinct building in Minneapolis was an act of insurrection. People referred to this movement as an uprising, not just the protest movement, not just the demonstration. And again, this is going to have uh, a real lasting impact because history ultimately wastes nothing. Now, it's no surprise that the movement seems to be slowing down. People can only be on the streets for so long without seeing real change come about. The spontaneity of a movement like this can be explosive, but without clear leadership, it ultimately has limits, and there's no exceptions to this rule. But even if it has peaked, and if it is beginning to ebb, it already went much further than anyone could have guessed, and it's ratcheted the population uh, generally even further to the left. It's raised greater expectations for what is possible and what is necessary if the workers are going to survive this crisis. Now, the movement leapfrogged over the current labor leaders. It leapfrogged over people like Bernie Sanders, Jacobin, and, and groups like Socialist Alternative. Uh, their reformist pragmatism was totally exposed and they found themselves tailing behind the masses. And this is exactly what happens when you're guided by so-called common sense and not by Marxist theory, when you learn positions by rote instead of learning and applying the dialectical method. Now, the way forward, of course, is through a general strike, a workers' party and a workers' government. And we need to boldly put these ideas forward. The broader working class isn't there quite yet, but I'd say now we are much closer to that than, than, than a lot of people might think. Now, despite the pandemic, our comrades intervened energetically in the movement. As, as we saw, 
over a hundred different protests we had comrades at. Uh, but the reality is that with this or that rare exception that might, might emerge, we really can't lead a movement like this at this stage. But what we're doing now is absolutely fundamental. Again, we're preparing for the victory of our class. We're preparing that fourth and essential factor for revolution, the subjective factor, the revolutionary party. There's absolutely no exceptions to this law of the class struggle under capitalism. And let's not forget, of course, that the fund isn't over yet. It's an election year. Uh, Trump is definitely vulnerable despite his continued public bravado. I mean, if you just look at the debacle of his, his little event in Tulsa, and I, I think it's fair to say that Joe Biden's best bet is to sit on the sidelines and avoid the media altogether and just try to give Trump some extra rope instead of hanging himself, which he's very uh, want to do. But my sense this time around, I've, I've been through a lot of electoral cycles and seen the, the ugly head of lesser evilism uh, raised time and time again, uh, every election, every presidential election in particular. Uh, and there's a lot of lesser evilism this time around. But I think that this time, uh, a lot of these people, they see the utter rottenness of the Democratic Party, and it's a little bit different. It, it's more like, yes, we got to get rid of Trump, but this time we really are going to settle accounts with Biden uh, and with the Democratic Party. So it's still anyone but Trump for a lot of voters. But after George Floyd, I think a lot of them are going to be in favor of doing a lot more than just, quote, keeping uh, keeping that party accountable, so to speak, as, as they claim to be doing with Obama uh, and so on via the regular channels of, of that party. Because even if Joe Biden wins, it would still be a society and a system in deep crisis. And of course, he's a stalwart defender of capitalism. Once in power, after the experience of Trump, the deep contradictions of the Democrats will be fully exposed. Things would accelerate even further. And, but we have to warn that if a mass workers party isn't built between now and the next couple election cycles, something even further to the right than Trump would be possible as voters thrash about in desperation looking for a way out. But what we can say is that the direction of the future Labour Party, the future Socialist Party, the future Workers Party, the future whatever the party is called and whatever combination of factors come together to form it, that it's going to be profoundly affected by the experience of, of the last few months. It's going to be much more emboldened and it's going to be much harder for the Labour bureaucracy and for the reformists to try to control and keep within safe channels. I think it's fair to say that the masses have come a lot closer to us but we need to stay ahead of the curve. And of course, we've got to keep our eye out above all on the advanced ones and twos. The masses are learning that demonstrations only go so far. Millions of people have made it clear that they're angry. But, but now what? You know, the movement against police violence inexorably is going to lead to other bigger questions and ultimately the need to get rid of the root cause of all of this violence in the first place. And that's why we've raised the question of an all-out general strike. A general strike is not just the performance, it's not just the threat, it's serious pressure in the direction of working class political and economic power, and it clearly poses the question of who actually runs society and who deserves to actually own the means of production and operate them in whose interest. Now, the IMT, we don't put forward a utopian blueprint for a new society. What we do is we generalize the past experience of the class struggle taking into account the present conditions, context, and potential, and we show scientifically how society can and must be organized in a totally different way. We explain how, starting with a mass workers' party armed with a revolutionary socialist program, a workers' government could provide food, housing, clothing, healthcare, education, and leisure time to every single human on the planet, not to mention that this is the only way 
we're all going to be able to survive the effects of climate change and to stop future viruses like COVID-19. Many lessons are being learned and absorbed by the workers and the youth. This is a process of ingestion, of absorption, and of excretion. Uh, and millions have gained practical experience on the nature of the state, of how to organize, and how to fight back. But again, without ideas, without a strategy, without a program, and a mass party, all the heroism and sacrifice in the world will not lead to a fundamental change. And that is the key lesson of the last century. Comrades, this is the new normal. This is what the molecular process of revolution looks like. Looking ahead to the next 5, 10, or 20 years, is it that hard to imagine that another American revolution is in preparation? But what stage are we at? And that's an important point. We shouldn't confuse the first month of pregnancy with the ninth, as we often say. Uh, however, I think we can safely say that the process of revolutionary gestation has begun. What we're living through is a revolutionary epoch. That doesn't mean that the revolution is coming next week. Both the American Revolution and the Civil War built up and played out over a period of decades. But the third American Revolution is coming in the next historical period, and we need a sense of urgency in preparing for it. Revolutions aren't as rare as the bourgeois would have us believe, but they also don't come along too many times in a single lifetime. We can't afford to miss too many opportunities. Now, we haven't yet earned the right to lead the coming socialist revolution, uh, and earning that right, the right to lead the working class to victory, is our main task in the next period. If we do our work correctly and learn from our mistakes, we will be in a position to help change the entire course of human history. Given this country's economic, political, and social weight, it's not an exaggeration to say that the fate of the whole of humanity ultimately depends on the outcome of the American Socialist Revolution. Now, that is something we're fighting and living for. Now, it's not going to be easy or automatic. We're probably looking at another decade or two or even more of very hard work and probably even a failed revolution or two. But through all of this experience, we will grow in numbers, we will grow in experience, and we'll be tempered in the fires of the class struggle. That's where we're headed, comrades. That's what we're preparing for. Every day that goes by, we're getting closer to that day of reckoning. Will we be ready? That is the, the question, and it's up to us to answer it in the affirmative. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Socialist Revolution Podcast. Don't forget to like, to subscribe to the podcast, to share it with your friends, your family, on social media. And we hope that this also inspired you to want to get involved in the fight for a better future. So if you want to learn more, or if you're ready to join a revolutionary socialist organization, you can do so at socialistrevolution.org. In addition, if you enjoyed today's talk, then we also encourage you to register for Marxist University 2020. This is a four-day online school hosted by the International Marxist Tendency on July 25th through 28th, so that's this weekend. You can register online at university.marxist.com and you'll find all the information that you need about the event on that website. Already, nearly 5,000 people from over 100 different countries have registered for this event, uh, which is being uh, broadcast and translated into a number of different languages in addition to English. So this is definitely not an event that you'll want to miss. Again, you can register online at university.marxist.com. <laughs>